So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23. We'll continue our study in that book. Today we'll be continuing to look at David's fleeing from Saul and uh, kind of some of the, the ups and downs of David's time as he's being prepared to be king. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord quickly in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would um, give us a taste of your glory in it, a taste of your authority, of your goodness, your mercy through it, that we would see your word as a gift to us, as a lamp to our feet, as a light to our path, as a balm to our wounds that we would see it as a source of life and not a source of death, that we would trust you as you teach us from it, that we would be convicted of our sins as we see them when we come face to face with you. Lord, we are thankful for your goodness to us, and we pray that you guide us in this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I was a youth pastor... I often was expected to play uh, silly games, and uh, and that might have been my least favorite part of youth ministry, frankly, uh, but I had to do it anyway. I, I hated playing those games. But there was one game that I kind of liked because it was um, interesting to see what the students could do. I only played it once, though, because of the, the outcome. I was afraid to do it again. Um, but it was a game that we called Trade Up. And it's been popularized by this guy who had started with a red paper clip and he ended up trading all the way up to a house. Uh, it's a pretty cool read if you want to look that up. It's pretty neat. So the basic rules are basically you start with a paper clip. It can be a red one if you want to. And, or, or, and you trade that for something. And then you take that something and then you trade it for something else. And then you keep going and hopefully you end up with something pretty cool. The goal was for the game is just to come back with something fun that the group would laugh at or whatever. And so they did that for like 40 minutes. And so when I did this with my youth group in Mississippi, the kids left with paper clips and they came back. One group came back with like an entire bag of hamburgers from McDonald's that we didn't eat because we didn't know why they would give them a whole bag of hamburgers. Um, two toilets, like actual full toilets on a trailer that the kids just happened to be dragging behind their truck that was Mississippi. Um, three bags of concrete, an old computer, there were lots of things. I was afraid that if we continued the game that who knows what they would come back with, so we stopped and I just we just didn't play again. Um, so I don't remember really the point of why we did that. It was like one of the m numerous other youth group games that were really a point to it. Probably just did it for fun. But I think that we all understand this basic idea, right? It's how we live our lives. We often will gladly trade something that we perceive to be of low value for something that we perceive to be of better value to us. And we'll do that every time, right? I'll give you a penny if you'll give me a dollar. Sure, we'll do that. We can do that infinitely if you'd like. Um, we like those kinds of trades, but what about giving away something of high value for something that we consider to be of less value? 
Well, we have the opposite kind of reaction to that. Oh, no, I would never do that. We turn our noses up. We walk away from that. We don't like to lose. That's the whole point. It symbolizes losing to us, and we don't like that, so we don't want to do that. We at least want an even trade, or what we perceive to be even, but never something less than that. And so in our passage today, there's some sort of trade-off that is going to be going on between the cities that are harboring David and Saul, this king that we've learned more and more about. Currently, they have David in their safety to one degree or another, but they will readily trade him for their own safety when it comes to King Saul, the ruthless king of Israel that has now officially lost his mind if you've been following with us, we'll see this exchange hap- happen in the chapter. It's going to happen twice, actually, this morning. And I think there's a lot of redemptive applications, of course, for us and some very practical ones. I want to consider this passage in two main ideas. First, exchanging safety for a king, and then exchanging the world for the king of kings. And so with that, let's read the text. First Samuel chapter 23, you can remain seated as we read this text together. 1 Samuel chapter 23, beginning at verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went into Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told, it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me unto his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord God said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. Then Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah. He gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, 
but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hikla, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. You make go, make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of, of Maon in Arabah, just south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. When Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger of Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Amen. This is God's word. So a quick review from where we looked at last week in 22, or the last part of 22. Saul, remember, hired his henchman, um, Doeg the Edomite, to destroy all the priests there in Nob and all of their families and everything that had breath, basically, he destroyed them. Why? Because the priests had helped David. And so Saul destroyed every one of them. There was 83 priests, I think, and then all of their family and livestock and everything destroyed. David received word of this from one of the priests who just happened to escape. And with this priest comes a connection to God that Saul no longer has. And we see that in this text working out. You, you see this kind of passing of the torch more so and more so into David's kingdom, moving away from the line of Saul, now that David has the, the priests on his side. And we see this with God, also talking directly to David through this priest, this, this linen ephod that represents God giving instructions. The linen ephod was kind of this... Um, plate that the priest would wear on their chest and it had all these little jewels on it and we aren't really sure how it was used but somehow this gave them direction as to what God was wanting them to do uh, this isn't 
you know, you're, don't go make e-pods for yourself now and try to figure them out. I don't think that's the, the point here. Uh, though I'm sure someone will sell them to you. Uh, I wouldn't do that. But they somehow used them uh, to discern God's will. And then we're going to continue to see these same ideas that we've seen, been seeing, right? David, the good guy. Saul, the ultimate bad guy. David here even wants to do right by Israel in the midst of being chased. He wants to um, go and destroy these Philistines or who, in, who, who are um, attacking this Hebrew town. And whatever internal strife Israel is having now, I think we're reminded at least twice in this text that they still have a common enemy with the Philistines. David deals with them on one end. Saul is called away on the other end. And they're both having to deviate from their plans ultimately because of the Philistines. And I think in both cases that works providentially for David. And so with that, let's look at the first idea, exchanging safety for a king. So David finds out again there at the very beginning that one of the cities of Judah is being attacked by the Philistines, this uh, Keilah. And you can imagine David, you know, David's kind of this soldier also, along with being like a harp player and shepherd and pretty much whatever else. And he has this fire kindled within him, not only to fight, which I think David liked to do, but also this is a town of Judah. David is of the tribe of Judah. These are his people. He feels a direct connection. He wants to go fight against them. He is no lover of the Philistines. Don't forget. Remember what he said to Goliath. Goliath defied the one true God. As far as David is concerned, it's hunting season on the Philistines all year round. And so he hears about this and he wants to go and vanquish them. But he still asks the Lord, what should I do? And the Lord answers him, go and fight the Philistines. And I think this is just kind of a little aside for us to see this. You know, David asked the Lord a question, and he gets this immediate answer in an audible voice. Arise, go and strike down the Philistines. I will deliver them into your hand. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that sort of answering service with the Lord? That we could just say, what do you think I should do? And he would immediately tell us, and we would kind of be the nice and easy way to go about life. Maybe it would be hard. I don't know. I've never had that. I think we all have decisions that we need guidance on. We often want the right answer right then and there. Sometimes the sort of uh, sometimes we need that just because of timing, which is an emergency kind of decision or whatever. We need to know the right answer, and we wish we had some sort of ephod or something like that to tell us. And I think in those times, and I think I've learned this more and more recently, in those times the Lord always puts folks in our paths who help us understand what his will for our lives is. Of course, we have the scriptures to give us guidance, his direct words to us. Ultimately, we know that the scriptures are the words of God. But do they speak to every single thing that's in our life? You know, should we buy the house? Should we sell the house? Should we do this? Should we do that? And so I think in those times, 
when we'd, when we'd love to hear an audible voice from the Lord, we shouldn't expect that, for one. Uh, but sometimes the audible voice is a friend saying, yeah, I think you should do that. Or, yeah, you should do this. Or, no, no way, don't do that. That's crazy. Or pointing us to a text of Scripture or an experience in their own life where the Lord has walked them through and helped them. And I think this is just an encouragement because we're all after this, what does the Lord want for my life? And I think all of us kind of feel this pressure. And it's just an encouragement. We don't get the kind of direct answers that David got, but it doesn't mean that the Lord isn't still talking to us today through his people, through his word. And so we do well to listen. And so what does David do? He hears, yes, go fight the Philistines. Even though his men were afraid, he gives them the green light. They go in there, they destroy the Philistines, and they ride into town in Tequila as Tequila, Tequila, as victors. Probably said that multiple times and just now caught myself. Sorry about that. I'll try to enunciate better. Uh, I wonder I wonder if the people of Kila received him with palm branches, their savior coming into town, the one who struck down their enemy, who would deliver them. Did they put their coats on the on the road as he rode into town? We don't know. But we do know that they readily sold him out when King Saul came asking. Thankfully, God let David know ahead of time. I love verse 14 in this passage. Verse 14 tells us, uh, it says, And and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. It reminds us who's in charge, as do the rest of the details of the story. And I think verse 14 is a great little reminder to us that God is still in charge, even though it seems to be going against David at times, or it maybe seems that it's going against us. We read in, from the Heidelberg Catechism today that we will rejoice even when it seems like it's going bad. We will rejoice because we know that God is good. And I think that's why I like this next passage so much. Times are difficult. David is running for his life, even in a town that he just saved. He isn't safe. And so I like this little reminder to us that God is with him every step of the way. And then here in verse 15 and 16, We get another idea. Jonathan comes, David's friend, who happens to be nearby. Why is he nearby? Well, his dad is nearby. Remember, Jonathan's a captain of the armies. He's there with his father, chasing down David, even though he is not chasing down David. What did Jonathan do for him? Well, Jonathan sneaks away. And it tells us that, or verse 16, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, and strengthened his hand in God. We don't really talk like that. It's the literal translation there is that exact translation, strengthened his hand in God. I think 
the, the idea that we should glean from this is that he encouraged David. He came and give him, or gave him encouragement. How did he do that? What did he remind David of? He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. They've already done this. This is probably just like a a re-upping of that covenant. So what does Jonathan come to tell David? The truth. You're the chosen king of Israel. Saul will not lay a hand on you because you are to be the king of Israel. You have a covenant with me that you're going to protect me and my people when you come into your kingdom. I will be right beside you. These are promises that we know. So during David's most difficult time, he has a friend come tell him the things that are true. I think this is helpful for us. I think lots of times we want a sort of quick fix for our lives when times are hard and we really need to hear is the truth. We want some sort of Five steps to make your life better, or something like that. And we like for those steps to be nice and simple. If I follow these five things, all of a sudden I'm going to wake up and everything's going to be rosy. Well, that's not very biblical. However, what we do know about the truth, we do know, well, someone telling us, well, imagine, I mean, I've had people come to me as a pastor, and they would say, my life is difficult. My marriage is bad. My kids are bad. My job is bad. Everything's bad. What do you say to them? Well, you may want to say get over it, but that's not very helpful. What do you tell them? Well, when it's a believer that comes to me and says that, what do I tell them? I tell them the gospel because that is true. No matter how much else is bad in your life, Jesus Christ died so that you can have deliverance. You are one of his. I tell them who they are in Christ. That is true. That is true regardless of their circumstances. I show them their own sin. I show them and lead them to repentance. These are things that are true and good. I show them the truth. If they're believers, what should they be with that truth? Encouraged. It's a good thing. Even though we sometimes don't want to hear it, it's good. Now, what about unbelievers? What do we do with them? It's no different. We show them the truth. What you believe isn't working. And want, there is one who will save them if they call upon his name. Do they have questions? Give them the truth. I think too often we are quick to give these little cliches and little Christian feel-good sayings. But what people need is the truth from Scripture. Absolutely. And Jonathan shows David that here. And I think this, I mean, this is not the thrust of the text, but I did notice that as we go through this. And I think it's important for us to realize David over and over again is reminded of this truth that is true about his own life. And I think it's important for us to see that as well. And so... 
David goes into this other place, this wilderness of Ziph, and of course the uh, Ziphites sell David out. They, they know where he's hiding, and uh, they do this in order to get on the good side of a bad king, which there's really uh, no good sides of this king. It's kind of like giving someone a new uh, Mustang for a little red paperclip. It doesn't really make any sense, but apparently the Ziphites thought it made lots of sense, and they did that. And think about if they had just let David hide. I mean, David's known for delivering people from the Philistines. He was, he was the king of Israel. They had the real king right there in their midst. But if they sell out David, what do they get to do? Well, they make a deal with the devil who will gladly throw a spear at you as well as look at you. And they, they are appeasing Saul, who had just murdered an entire town full of priests and their families. The hero rides into town, and the townsfolk tell him, or tell the enemy, where he's sleeping. I think this should remind us of another story. Jesus rides into town. Remember, what do they do? They put palm branches on the ground, the sign of victory. They put their coats on the ground. Their Savior has come. They're screaming out, Hosanna in the highest, citing Psalm 118. They're shouting because their Savior would deliver them from their enemies, right? They were excited as they ushered their king into town. And a week later, once Jesus managed to get on the bad side of all the important people in town, what are they yelling at him? Crucify him. Crucify him. Selling him out to their enemy in order to get what in return? A robber named Barabbas. And then what do they say? We have no God but Caesar. They even throw their religion under the bus in order to get something a lot less. And are we like that? It's an important question. We exchange that type of salvation for a common criminal. Switch teams to be on the losing team. Brings me to the next point. Exchanging the world for the king of kings. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. And today is Palm Sunday, which I thought... It's amazing how the Lord tends to work these things out. And I saw this, this great parallel here. Matthew 21 is where we get the story of the triumphal entry, as it's often called, as Jesus rides into town with the palm branches. Then he goes and he cleanses the temple. Uh, he turns over the money changer and tables, and people aren't too happy about that. And then he begins to give some parables concerning the chief priests and the rulers. So look with me at verse 33 through 46 of this chapter, Matthew 21. I encourage you to read this whole chapter today as in your own time. I think it's uh, I think it's great just to get a context of what we're looking at. But let's look together at 33 through the end of the chapter. Jesus says this. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit draw near, 
he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? Again from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They're bright. And although, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And so Jesus tells this parable after riding into town on a donkey's colt. And he directs this towards the chief priests. Why? What does Jesus' riding into town symbolize? This is the deliverance of his people. He's not coming to town to be crowned a king. He's coming to town to die for his people. And why did the chief priests deserve this sort of treatment? Well, they mistreated the prophets of God. These other servants who were come to collect the fruit, they tortured and they killed them. They refused the message of salvation that required of them what? A change of heart rather than more and more adherence to the law. All the prophets of old, who did they talk about? They talked about the son. They talked about Jesus. And now when Jesus comes in, they want to kill him. They trusted in their ability to obey the law completely, disregarding their history, which completely suggests that they're unable to do so. So they rejected the prophet's words. And what did they do when the son came to town? They killed him. Are we like this? Anytime that we think our own works are greater than that of Christ's, Anytime we look at our own fruit, rather than that which God gives us, what do we do? We reject the king, and we choose our enemy over him. And not only that, we drive the king out of town. We sell him out to the enemy. We might have welcomed him into town with palm branches, but rest assured every one of us would have been yelling, Crucify him, crucify him with everyone else. So what hope then do we have? Well, we have the very one that we would have sold out anyway. We have that one, the one that saves us, the stone 
that the builders rejected, even stumbled over, he has become the chief cornerstone. He, Jesus Christ, is our only hope. And you know what he did? He took our little red paper clip, which is essentially worthless, and he gave us eternal life for it. We had nothing to offer, yet he gave us everything. We would have killed him, thinking that we would have somehow could somehow take his inheritance from him, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, that we could somehow gain. We would have told Saul about David too, just to have this little feeling of safety from this lunatic king, exchanging the gentle shepherd David of Judah with this crazy nut from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul. Yet, what did David do? He came and he delivered his people. What does our Lord do? He comes to deliver his people. Yet, And we are one of those. Those of you who have called upon his name and have been saved, you are one. Why are you one? Because he is good. Because he is merciful. And even while we were his enemies, he died for us. And even now he prepares a place for us. And so in conclusion, what do we do? I think we never forget that we are among those. Like Paul says, he says this to the Corinthians. He says, and such were some of you, as he names off this long list of of ills that we would have easily put the people of these two cities in. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But such were some of you, but you are that no longer because of what he did for us. And so let us then encourage one another with this truth. Like David, we will be troubled. We will have difficult times. Hopefully we're never seeking refuge in a city and that city sell us out. But we do have these other things going on in our lives that seem equally troublesome to us. And so what do we need to be reminded of? Well, just be a better person. It'll, it'll work itself out. No, we need to be reminded of the truth. A giant trap for a believer is to be more aware of their sin than the righteousness of Christ. We are saved because of what he did for us. And so gather folks around you, brothers and sisters, and I hope that we are this for each other. We need people that will regularly remind us of the righteousness of Christ in our lives. Also, never cease calling upon the Lord. We don't always get these easy, clear answers. Yes, go do this. But we still cry out to him. We listen to his word. We listen to those that he's put in our lives. And we are all prone to wander. And we exchange the riches of God for nothing. We, we do this. We struggle. That is the sin that we struggle with and will continue to do so until he comes home or he comes back or we go home to be with him. But keep hope. Brothers and sisters, our king sits on the throne and he watches over all of us. Let's pray. 
Our Lord Jesus, we would have been among those who shouted crucify. We would have been among those who would have sold you out. But Lord, yet you saved us anyway. Even while we were yet your enemies, you delivered us. And so now we worship you. Help us to worship you. Help us to seek you in worship. Help us to encourage and strengthen one another by your hand. Help us to call upon you to ask for wisdom and strength that you would give us, that you would strengthen and encourage us, that you would grow us as a church together with one another, that we might go and tell others about the saving knowledge and the work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.